0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and Minpost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Leslie Neka Arima at Hennepin County Library, Brookdale. Nigerian-American short fiction favorite, Leslie Neka Arima made waves in April with the release of her long-awaited collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. For months prior, publications as varied as time, The Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, and even BuzzFeed had lauded it as one of 2017's most anticipated releases, and with good reason. Arima's debut features a dozen stories, several of which have already earned her an international following. These include the O. Henry Prize-winning, National Magazine Award-nominated, Glory, about a doll woven from hair which comes to life, and Light, winner of the prestigious Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Considered in its entirety, NPR calls what it means when a man falls from the sky, electrifying and defiantly original. Arima craft stories that reward rereading, not because they’re unclear or confusing, but because it’s so tempting to revisit each exquisite sentence, each uniquely beautiful description.
1: Thank you all for coming. So I've prepared a bit of a sandwich for you guys today in that I will read and then I will talk and then I will read again. And so I would like to start us off by reading from the collection, uh, The Future Looks Good. As Emma fumbles the keys against the lock and doesn't see what came behind her, her father as a boy when he was still tender vying for his mother's affection. Her grandmother, overworked to the bone by the women whose houses she dusted, whose laundry she washed, whose children's asses she scrubbed clean, overworked by the bones of a husband who wanted many sons and the men she entertained to give them to him, sees her son to his 13th year with the perfunction of a nurse and dies in her bed with a long weary sigh. His stepmother regards him as one with a stray dog that came by often enough that she knows its face, but she'll be damned if she'll let him in. They dance around each other, boy waltzing forward with want, woman pirouetting away. She grew up the eldest daughter of too many and knew how the needs of a child can drown out a girl's dreams. The boy sees only the turned back, the dismissal, and the father ignores it all, blinded by the delight of an old man with a young wife still fresh between her legs. This one he won't share. And when the boy is 15 and returns from the market to find his possessions in two plastic bags in the front doorstep, he doesn't even knock to find out why or ask where he's supposed to go, but squats with other unmothered boys in an abandoned half-built bungalow, where his two best shirts are stolen and he learns to carry his money with him at all times. He begs, he sells scrap metal, he steals, and the third comes so easy to him it becomes his way out. He starts small, with picked pockets and goods snatched from poorly tended market stalls. He learns to pick locks, to hotwire cars, to finesse his sleight of hand. When he is 21, the war comes, and while people are cheering in the streets and shouting, Biafra, Biafra, he begins to stockpile goods. When goods become scarce, he makes his fortune. When food becomes scarce, he raids farms in the dead of night, which is how he will meet his wife, and why Ezema, fumbling the keys against the lock, doesn't see what came behind her. Her mother at age 22, not beautiful, but with the fresh look of a person who has never been hungry. Her mother is a brash girl who takes more than is offered. It's 1966. Months before everything changes, and she's at a party hosted by friends of her parents, and there is a man there, yellow skinned like a mango, and square jawed, and body like the statue of David, wealthy. The unmarried women strap on their weaponry, winsome smiles, robust cleavage, accommodating personalities, and go to war over him. When she comes out the victor, she takes Mm -hmm. it as her due. Almost a year into their courting, the war comes. Her people are Biafra loyalists. His people think Ojuku is a fool. On the night of their engagement party, only her people attend. And when she goes by his house the next day, she discovers he has left the country. Her family is soon forced to flee the city, soon forced to barter what they had been able to carry, soon forced to near begging, and for the first time in her life, Food is so scarce, she slips into farms at night, and harvests tender tubes of half-grown corn in stealth. They boil so soft, she eats the inner core and fibrous husk too. One night, she finds a small farm tucked behind the hill, and there she encounters a man stealing the new yams that would have been hers. There is no competition. He is well-fed and strong, and even if she tried to raise an alarm out of spite, he could silence her but he puts his finger to his lips and gives her a am. And being who she is, she gestures for two more. He gives her another one, and she scurries away. The next night, when she returns to the farm, he is waiting for her. She sits by him, and they listen to crickets and each other's breathing. When he puts his arm around her, she leans into him and cries for the first time since her engagement party many months ago. When he puts a yam in her lap, she laughs. And when he takes her hand, she thinks, I am worth three yams. She will have two daughters. The first she names Biafra out of spite, as though to say, look, mother, pin your hopes unto another fragile thing. And the second is named after her mother, who has since died and doesn't know that her daughter has forgiven her for choosing the losing side and named her youngest child Esimah who fumbles the keys against the lock and doesn't see what came behind her. Her sister, whom everyone has taken to calling Bibi because what nonsense to name a child after a country that doesn't exist. Bibi, who is beautiful in a way her mother never was. Bibi, stubborn like her mother was always. They fought since Bibi was in the womb, lying so heavy on her mother's cervix a light jaw could have jostled her out, bedridden, Bibi's mother grew to resent her and stewed so hot the child should have boiled in her belly. And three years later, Ezema, pretty, yes, but in that manageable way that causes little offense. She is a ghost of Bibi, paler in tone and personality, but sweet in the way Bibi can be when Bibi wants something. Bibi loathes her. No, Ezema can't play with Bibi's toys. No, Ezema can't walk with Bibi and her friends to school. No, Ezema can't have a pad. She'll just have to wad up tissues and deal with it. Ezema grows up yearning for her sister's affection. When Bibi is 21 and her parents are struggling to pay the university fees, she meets Godwin, yellow skinned and square jawed like his father and falls in love. She falls harder when her mother warns her away, and when her mother presses, saying, you don't know what his people are like, I do, Bibi responds, you're just angry and bitter that I have a better man than you, and her mother slaps her, and that's the end of that conversation. Ezema serves as a go-between, a role she's been shankhied into since her youth, and keeps Bibi apprised of all the family news, despite her mother's demands that Ezema cut her off. And Godwin is a better provider than Bibi's father, now a modest trader. He rents her a flat, he lends her a car, he blinds her with a constellation of gifts, things she's never had before, like spending money and orgasms. The one time she brings up marriage, he walks out and she can't reach him for 12 days. 12 days that put the contents of her bank account in stark relief, 12 days that she sits in the flat that's in his name, drives the car also in his name, and wonders what is so precious about this name he won't give to her. And when he finally returns to see her packing, he grabs her hair, pulling, screaming that even this is his. She is struck by his fist, yes, but also by the realization that maybe her mother was right. The reunion isn't tender. Bibi's right eye is almost swollen shut, and her mother's mouth is pressed shut, and they neither look at nor speak to each other. Her father, who could never bear the tension between the two women, the memories of his turbulent childhood brought back, squeezes Bibi's shoulder, then leaves, and it is that gentle pressure that starts her tears. Soon she is sobbing, and her mother is still stone-faced, but it is a wet face she turns away so no one can see. Ezema takes Bibi to the bathroom, the one they've shared and fought over since they were old enough to speak. She sits her on the toilet lid and begins to clean around her bruises. When she is done, it still looks terrible. When Bibi stands to examine her face, they are both in the mirror. I still look terrible, Bibi says. Yes, you do, Ezema replies. And they are soon laughing, and in their reflection, they notice for the first time that they have the exact same smile. How have they gone this long without seeing that? Neither knows. Bibi worries about her things that are uh, still in the flat. Ezema says not to worry, she will get them. Why are you still nice to me, Bibi asks. Habit, Ezema says. Bibi thinks about it for a moment and says something she's never said to her sister. Thank you. And so Ezema fumbles the keys against the lock and doesn't see what came behind her. Godwin, who grew up under his father's corrosive indulgence, Godwin, so used to hearing no, it hits him like a wave of acid, dissolving the superficial decency of a person who always gets his way. Godwin, who broke his cello when he discovered his younger brother could play it better, which is why he came to be here, watching Ezema, who looks so much like her sister from behind, fumbling the unfamiliar keys against the lock of Bibi's apartment so she doesn't see who comes behind her. Godwin, with a gun, he fires into her back. Um, and so, yeah, you know, this is the um, thank you. This is the first story um, in my collection, and through the process of writing this book, I you know, often played around with the ordering of the stories, you know, deciding you know, which you know what I, you know things that pair together well, or whether the, you know my first idea was going from you know most realistic to. Um, to more, gearing more towards the most fantastic in terms of, you know, fantasy and, and magical realism. Um, but in either of these um, orders that I played around with, The Future Looks Good was always the first story um, that I wanted in the collection because, um, and I wanted it so because I thought that it gave a pretty good idea of what the rest of the book was going to be like. Mm-hmm in terms of theme and sometimes in terms of format. And it was also short enough that the reader could you know, bail out if they wanted to. <laughs> if they <laughs> haven't wasted too much time. Um, the collection itself covers quite a bit of ground from stories uh, like this one that are firmly rooted in realism to stories that take place in worlds that aren't our own. Um, and you know, this story does take place in the real world, but the format of it... Um, that sort of cyclical revolution through time lends an almost um, fabulist quality to it. That's picked up by uh, stories later in the collection that do engage in, um, you know, um, fabulism and magical realism. And um, it's important for me that stories work on more than one level. And so in this case, I was, you know, writing about the, um, you know, this. The Biafra War and also not in that this was um, the war was in the background, but I also wanted um, the story to work on more on more than one level and so I experimented with this idea mm. of time being cyclical mm. and having that come out in the um, in the collection and you know I had just read um, about this idea of um, generational trauma and how you can look at someone's genes and know that their grandmother, for example, grew up starving, right? It's something that we carry. We carry the trauma of our antecedents in our, um, in our genes. And so the idea, so I, I sort of wanted to um, sort of, you know, of course, not write about that idea directly, but play with this idea of uh, history being a circle or time being a circle and that we always Sort of have to reckon with the trauma of our parents, of our grandparents, and so in this particular story, it's you know it's manifested in um, you know in this in the eventual outcome of the story, this you know violent outcome that started from events that happened long before the character affected was born, and um, and so you know, I, and also with this story, I wanted to write about the Biafra War, but not. Um, And the war was something that loomed ghost-like in the background of the stories that my father told us about his youth. um, But it was very much in the background. And so for me, it was a setting, um, almost like a distant setting for the more interesting story of who my parents were when they were children. And they they were both children when the war happened. Um, um, Our, Nigeria's only civil war. And so um, I I like that I like this idea of um, sort of coming at uh, things sideways in that way um, of writing um, from the periphery. And I always think that writing from the periphery means that um, you know by sort of forcing yourself to take an indirect um, look at what's happening, it it sort of opens up doors in terms of just your own thinking, and and opens up different uh, doors in terms of what stories can be told. Right, people who are affected by the war, but not necessarily people who are directly engaged in like the actual fighting. And that has always sort of fascinated me, the people who are on the periphery of um, whatever the major conflict might be, whether it's an actual physical conflict or like a cultural conflict. And so the story sort of reflects it in a way by writing about the war through the people who lived through it. Um, and it's important for me to write through stories like this, um, stories that come to Nigeria sideways. And I didn't know that was what I was doing at the time, but it became quite clear to me as the collection came together that, um, that I was, you know, that I, I myself was not sort of entirely uninterested in writing up the stories about um, well-behaved or even socially acceptable Nigerians, um, particularly when it came to women. Nigeria as a whole is a very conservative society, and um, we have very firm ideas of what women are and aren't supposed to be, and are and aren't supposed to do. And um, because these um, spoken and unspoken rules are so immutable, uh, I'm fascinated by those who shirk them, um, particularly when they shirk the stories and don't sort of rise through. Triumphant, but like you know, fall flat in their face. You know, the people who disobey the rules and, and you know don't have a happy ending. You know, that's really interesting for me. Um, uh, interesting perspective for me to explore because I think it's very honest. It's easy to write about people who, who break the rules and um, and achieve some sort of success and the sort of like triumphant happy ending, but it's not realistic and so I wanted to write the stories of women especially who broke rules and had to deal with the very real consequences of having broken these rules and um, stepped out of these rules that were uh, considered acceptable for them. Um, and you know, the stories um, of the mavericks, the failures, et cetera, are the ones that are um, interesting to me, the outcast women, um, and these are the stories that call to me Um, And these are the characters who speak most clearly to me, uh, knowing that I will understand them, knowing that I will give their stories the same care and dignity I would give my own. Uh, But again, I also require my stories to do more than one thing. And so um, it's important for me that stories don't simply document what's happening. I feel like for documentation of, of either um, a cultural landscape or historical um, event, you know, we have books of um, you know, sociology and history to do that. Um, and it's important for me, especially for my fiction, to go beyond documentation towards being inventive and towards um, exploring stories, again, from the periphery in ways that are not necessarily mm-hmm. conventional. And so, for example, um, a story about a woman's ambivalence about wanting children um, now becomes Who Will Greet You at Home, which is a story set in a world where um, women make their children out of uh, materials that fit their station and then bless them, like the, 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 their mothers bless these formed children into life. Right. And so this idea that not only am I engaging with the stories of these maverick women, of these um, you know misbehaving women, I am also working, um, I'm also a storyteller who is trying to be inventive on a craft level as well. Um, just again, just going beyond documentation towards invention. And um, one of the stories that um, that really engaged in invention is the title story of the collection what it means when a man falls from the sky and this is a story that i wrote a couple of years ago and it was um, before the refugee crisis had become um, a staple in our news cycle and it was one of those um, unhappy accidents i say unhappy because i would i would prefer that it was not a staple in our. it wasn't a thing that we had to be dealing with right now um, but because it did um, deal with refugees in a way, um, it did ended up, ta- it ended up taking a life of its own and one that it, I did not personally intend when I wrote the story. And so this is a story that takes place um, several years in the future, you know, roughly around maybe 2090, 2072 through, through 2090. And um, I was—it's a story that you know imagines the future, but imagines a future in Nigeria. And you know, one of the funny things about being somebody who I, you know, I've always been really interested in science fiction um, is you know reading all these stories about science fiction where like Africa has like disappeared. And it's like, sorry, you guys, we, we make it too, right? Like we we're going to be around as well. And so, um, and so it was interesting to me to imagine what a future um, Nigeria might look like, and but also not just. A future Nigeria, but also thinking about a future world, and so I, I mean, I was very—I took a lot of liberties with this story, and so I—it's a story that's about refugees, it's about climate change, it's about you know, um, sort of countryhood and what it means to be a country, and so uh, I'll just offer sort of just a sort of bare bones um, uh, summary about the world of this story. So the story takes place, you know, around 2070, 2090, and um, the, uh, the climate change has sort of gone to an, it's, its extreme end mm-hmm. and there several continents have been flooded. So North America is completely covered in water, as is Europe and most of Russia. And basically the only continents that are unaffected by this flooding are Africa and Australia. Mm-hmm. And so um, because Africa is such a large continent, most of um, the countries that exist now sort of relocate to, to Africa and what happens is that the um, former co- former um, colonizers return to their former colonies, and so, you know, so Britain comes back to Nigeria, for example, and and you know France France goes to Algeria and Senegal, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, and so. It was important, again important to me to explore the idea of what Africa might look like in the future, but I was also wanted to be realistic, so it wasn't it wasn't sort of like a ha ha the foots and the you know, the shoes and the other foot now <laughs> kind of story. Like, I wanted to be realistic about what that would look like in terms of um, of power differentials and you know sort of being true to the way history has been so far. And so it was not sort of like a triumphant like you know um, idea of like you know getting revenge on the colon- you know that that was was not how. That's not, that was not how it worked out in the story, and it's not how I think it would re- realistically work out if, the, if this ever happened. And so, in the story, um, the people who, um, when Nigeria, com- when um, Britain comes back to Nigeria, they don't come back as you know, sort of like with a handout begging for help. Like they come with their own resources, they come with the power differentials, they come with threats of bi- deploying bi- biological weapons um, in order to sort of like gain um, equity in the government. Right um, um, at the time, I was also heavily um, researching the history of, of France and Algeria, for example. And you know, when when um, Algeria was a was a French colony, they would you know there was a lot of um, it was you know it was it was it was very fraught with um, with sort of the, of um, you know this sort of awful almost genocidal um, events. And uh, the, you know, at one point, you know, the French would sort of um, block Algerians into these, you know, they'd sort of run from the French army into these caves and then the French would gas the caves and so everyone in there would die. You know, entire villages just like, you know, dead. and so I I wanted to write a story that was realistic in terms of reflecting what the history was like and what that might look like in the future. And so it's not, so it's not, again, it's not a story, it's not a triumphant story in terms of, you know, um, the colon, former colonizers returning to the colonies needing, requiring, needing help from them. Um, and But also, again, I require that my stories do more than just sort of document, right? So in this case, I wasn't just documenting the future. I also, um, also within this story, there is an invention, this uh, mathematical formula that has been um, created that uh, supposedly sort of, um, explains the universe and it, and it explains the universe so thoroughly that it almost replaces religion in a way. And this, you know, the idea that this formula means that we can someday um, heal the human body and um, you know um, heal the human body not just physically but mentally as well. And so the main character of the story is a Nigerian woman who is a quote unquote grief worker, who is somebody who can use this formula to remove grief from a person. And so the story also deals with the question of is grief like what what is what's the use of grief? What's the use of like what's the purpose of grief? What's the purpose of trauma? Is it something that you would choose to give up if it meant you could move forward or is is that is or is it a power or something that motivates you in a way that so you wouldn't want to give it, give it up? Again, the idea that I you know stories need to do more than one thing. So beyond inventing, beyond imagining this future, also thinking about the human condition and what it is that we do with um, the, the choices we make, and what we do with our with our um, with our bodies. Um, and so, I wanted to sort of read a very brief um, passage from that story. Um, and then I will um, close out by reading um, another story in its, uh, another very short story in its entirety. So this part of the story happens when um, our main character, who's, um, her name is Nioma, and she's not a very nice person. Um, again, I, I, I do enjoy writing characters who who don't behave the way we want them to. So she's not a very nice person, and she one of her duties is that she goes to um, goes to various schools t- and, um, with a goal of finding other um, people who can read the formula in a way that it's, it's, like, it's helpful, right? And so most people who, who read the formula doesn't mean anything to them, but every once in a while someone who sees it sees the potential of what it can do. So she goes to this school and she's sort of very unimpressed by what the students say and she's ready to leave, um, especially because she is somebody who, though she can remove grief, almost always decides, she's decided to work with um, wealthy clients who have lost a child. So she doesn't deal with, she doesn't want to deal with this refugee population. She doesn't want to deal with people who are in extreme distress and there's a child who is in that sort of distress who's in the classroom and she leaves the classroom to avoid her. She checked the stalls to make sure she was alone and bent forward to take deep breaths. She rarely worked with refugees, true refugees for this reason. The complexity of their suffering always took something from her. The only time she felt anything as strongly was after her mother had passed and her father was in full lament, listening to the side of ruin. How could Nyama tell him that she couldn't even look at him without being broken by it? He would never understand. The day she tried to work on him, to eat her father's grief, she finally understood why it was forbidden to work on close family members. Their grief was your own, and you could never get out of your head long enough to calculate it. The attempt had ended with them both sobbing, holding each other in comfort and worry, till her father became so angry at the futility of it, the uselessness of her talents at this one crucial moment, that he said words he could not take back. The bathroom door creaked open. Niyama knew who it was. The girl couldn't help but seek her out. They stared at each other a while, the girl uncertain, till Niyama held out her arms and the girl walked into them. Niyama saw the sadness in her eyes and began to plot the results of it on axis. At one point, the girl's mother shredded by gunfire, her brother taken in the night by a gang of thugs, Her father falling to the synthesized virus that attacked all the melanin in his skin till his body was an open sore. And other, smaller hurts. Hunger so deep she swallowed fistfuls of mud. Hiding from the men who turned on her after her father died. Sneaking into her old neighborhood to see new houses filled with the more fortunate of the French evacuees. Those who hadn't been left behind to drown. Their children chasing her her away with rocks like she was a dog. Yama looked at every last suffering, traced the edges, weighed the mass, and then she took it. No one had ever really been able to explain what happened then, why one person could take another person's grief. Mathematical theories abounded based on how humans were, in the plainest sense, a bulk of atoms held together by positives and negatives, a type of cellular math, an equation all their own. A theologian might have called it a miracle, a kiss of grace from God's own mouth. Philosophers opined that it was actually the parents who gave up their sadness. But in that room, it simply meant that a girl had an unbearable burden, and then she did not. Um, and so the last thing I would like to read, um, And so, so I've read so far, like briefly, well, in full from the, um, the Future Looks Good, which is a story that's entirely realism, and then um, this What It Means from this Man Falls from the Sky, which is entirely taking place in this future sci- you know, sort of science fiction world. And um, I'd like to read from Second Chances, which is a story that is a blend of both realism and ma- magical realism, and also deals with the question of grief. Second Chances. Ignore for a moment that two years out of grad school, I am old enough to buy my own bed and shouldn't ask my father to chip in on a mattress so that he shows up with my mother who looks like she stepped out of a photograph and she tries to charm the salesman, something she was never good at, but it works this time and he takes off 20%. Ignore for a moment that she is wearing an outfit I haven't seen in 18 years, not since Nigeria when she was pregnant with my younger sister, the not yet showing, and fell down the concrete steps to our house, ripping the dress from hem to thigh. Ignore that she flits from bed to bed, bouncing on each one like she hasn't seen a mattress in a while, and the salesman follows her around like he'd like to crawl in with her. Ignore all this, because my mother has been dead for eight years. My father avoids the look I give him, And I'm glad there are beds around because I collapse into one, unable to stand. When I grab my father's wrist, I cannot, at this juncture, imagine touching her. He twists away from me. I follow him, but he refuses to be cornered. So I walk up to my my mother and ask, what the hell are you doing here? The salesman looks at me like I kicked her. My mother looks pained like I might as well have. But shock leaves very little room for guilt. Your daddy and I are buying you a bed. Didn't you say you wanted a bed? The gentle child chiding is something I never thought I'd hear again, and my knees almost buckle, but something about the casual way she's correcting me, like she's got me right, angers me. Why are you here? You're supposed to be, my father interrupts this. Do you want the bed or not? Both of them stare at me expectantly. I want to press the issue, but I also really, really need the bed. I nod and the salesman hesitates like he doesn't want to give the discount if it's for me, then walks away to ring it up. My mother is digging through her purse and I know it's not to pay because she never does when my dad is around, but maybe she's different now. Then she sighs and says, Ike, darling, have you seen my sunglasses? The photo my mother has stepped out of was taken in 1982 she is wearing a green and Ankara print caftan belted at the waist and it billows becomingly. There is a red patina in the photo that has developed over time. As she stands in the kitchen now, humming as she checks the cupboards, I see that the red tint is on her, starker against the white of the cabinets than at the store. The edges of her face are soft, as though she's kept the slight blur of the photo as well. Slung over her shoulder is a tan raffia purse. All that's missing are her red sunglasses. In the picture, they are tucked into the V at her neck, awaiting the Onugu sun. My father putters around her, and he is grayer, paunchier, slower than the last time I saw them together, but they move the same way, a tender, familiar dance. Every time I take a breath to say something, My father glances at me and his delight shuts me up. When they bend their heads together and begin to whisper, I slip away from the counter and into my father's room. I have to find the photo. It's missing from the dressing table that even after all this time still holds my mother's jewelry and perfumes, glittering bottles that range from Avon to Armani. The jewelry is just as varied, but most of it is costume, loud, bobbly pieces crusted with bling. My mother wore no jewelry in the photo, not even a ring, as she, and my father, wasn't, weren't wed at the time, but brave young lovers with, as my mother used to say, nothing to prove. There are other pictures of her in the dressing table, one when she was a child, stiff between her parents, long dead, pictures of her at my high school graduation, one on my dad's 50th birthday, and my favorite, The one where she's fluffing my baby sister's frilly white pantaloons and my dad snaps just when Udama kisses the top of mom's head. Udama. I hear the front door open and she calls out in that Lucy and home ways of hers and I rush to warn her before it's too late. When Udama walks in, she pauses for a stunned moment and my father holds his arms out like ta-da and she does what I should have done when I first saw my mother. She runs to her and holds her so tight about the waist. It's a wonder mom can breathe, her sobs shaking them both. And I'm going to skip a little bit forward in time. Um, And so what you need to know is that um, the protagonist has a very fraught relationship with with her mother, as as you may have guessed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, and is having quite a bit of trouble dealing with um, Dealing with uh, the aftermath of um, of her mother of her mother's return, I resume the search for the photograph. I avoid my old room, still the cyclone of a mess I left it in. If it's in there, it will never be found. I head to Dama's instead, where it's neat as a catalogue. I start with the closest chest of drawers, drawers as uncluttered as the room, every sock and panty folded into a tidy square. It's easy to see that the picture isn't here. I reach my hand into the drawer and scatter her things anyway. I'm moving on to the next drawer when Udama sighs in the doorway. I ignore her and continue digging. I can feel it coming upon me. The unfurling of myself until all that will will remain is a raw center. I have to find a photo. I have to. Udama still stills me with a hand on my shoulder. She hugs me from behind and I am once again taken by her intuition. It was like that growing up too, starting after we moved to Houston when she was only five and I was 17. She's always been able to sense my mood, what it needs and contort herself to fit that need. Now she whispers, why can't you let me have this? Please let me have this, but I can't. She's supposed to be dead. Budama flinches at the word. Don't you have questions? I don't care and you shouldn't care either. You were so unhappy when she left. How can you be upset that she's back? I face her. She is dressed in the uniform required by the Christian high school she attends. I've never asked her if she really believes. Wary of introducing yet another complication to my story, adding unbeliever and sinner to psycho, but she always seems so sure about everything so accommodating of fate in a way that eludes me. I envy her her surety. I envy her the uncomplicated relationship with our mother, where mom was just mom, and not yet a woman with whom she disagreed. I retreat to avoid answering and run into my mother in the doorway. Have you girls seen my sunglasses? My answer to Adama's questions has sucked the moisture from my throat, and I move past her, unable to speak. The Dama murmurs something and my mother murmurs a reply and they no doubt begin a touching conversation I will never be a part of. Downstairs, my father has fallen asleep on the couch, a glass of wine and his cellphone on the table in front of him. I wonder what my mother said when he poured it as he'd been a teetotaler since before I was born. He looks larger than I've ever seen him, as though inflated with glee and he snores loudly the soundtrack of my youth. I notice it then, a grimy white corner peeking out of his phone case from a slot meant to house credit cards. I lift the case and run to the small guest bathroom locking myself inside. I grip the white corner and slide it out. The photo has been folded then folded again so that in accordions open to reveal a red tinge couch and the edge of a large speaker that served as an end table. My mother, who should be standing in front of the couch, is missing. In the corner, so small I almost miss them, are the sunglasses she searches for, almost off frame. A sob gurgles in my throat. I sit to steady myself, and my right leg bounces a nervous jig. I remember our last conversation. I was in the living room, waiting until it was time to pick Udama from the airport. She'd spent two summer months with my aunt, whom I disliked for her utter disinclination to put up with my bullshit. It was close to the time for me to leave and I just kept flipping through TV channels until I fell asleep. I woke up to my mother yelling, you mean you're still here? I got a call from the airport police because they think your sister is abandoned and you're here. I thought something happened to you. Her urgency chased away the grogginess and I was suddenly alert and and unapologetic. A quick glance showed that I was almost four hours late and panic flowered in my stomach. I knew my mother was beyond common fury because she tossed her Bible on the couch like it was a dime store novel. She shoved her phone in my face, the one she turned silent every Wednesday night so she didn't get distracted at Bible study, and there were almost 30 messages. I had violated her cardinal immigrant rule, live quietly and above the law. Every time, Gurche, every time I ask you to do a simple, thing, a simple thing, you cannot do it. I'm sorry. You're sorry, you're sorry, always sorry, no. She cuts my response off at the knees. What you are is disappointing. You are so disappointing. You are disappointing. The last iteration was said not with calcifying anger, but an abrupt sadness that underscored the truth of it. In that timber resonated my every fuck up, every tantrum I'd pulled, every item I'd stolen, every time she must have cringed at having to introduce me as her daughter. I ran out onto the patio and slammed the door so hard it cracked, the sound of splintering glass taking the edge off my hurt. My mother started up again, shouting as she grabbed her keys and went to pick up Udama. I never told my father about our last exchange words nor Udama, not even the therapist at that place who dug and dug because he knew I kept something from him. The secret of it settled a cloak of guilt on me I will wear for the rest of my life. Now, when no frantic knocks sound, I begin to feel the sheepishness of a child who has hidden whom no one cares to find. I emerge to see my father where I left him, oblivious to the missing photograph. Someone has put a blanket on him. The clang of kissing pots comes from the kitchen, and I know who is there. She glances up at me when I enter, but returns to to the task at hand, a bouquet of ingredients to turn into soup. Why won't you let yourself enjoy this, my mother says. And it echoes Udama's, why can't you let me have this so closely, I suspect a conspiracy. When I say nothing, she turns to me naked, hand in hand, and ask a question whose answer has thorned my side. Ne, what do you want from me? The answer I imagine. I want you to boil the chicken with onions and salt. I want you to melt the palm oil on medium heat and sizzle Agbano until it dissolves. I want you to cough when the pepper tickles your throat. I want you to sprinkle in crayfish so tiny, I believe at age four they've been harvested half-formed from their mother's womb. I want you to watch the Ogbano thicken the water and add the stockfish and the okra and the spinach and the boiled meat and the salt you never put enough of and call us when it's ready and say grace and be gracious and forgive me. The answer I give, the lopsided scrug I manage when I can't find words. She turns back to chopping, and I leave when the onion gets to her eyes. When I enter my room, I try to conjure happier memories, but all that comes to mind is five minutes ago and the last time we spoke. I crawl into my old bed, still half covered in items I promised to sort, and hug a skein of yarn to my chest, hoping for the temporary erasure of sleep. She is gone in the morning. The kitchen holds her remains, a turned-over pot in the dish rack and the scent of okra. I find my father on the couch, showered and dressed. His eyes are red and swollen, but he is smiling. Utama sleeps on the settee close by. They must have spent the night talking. My father checks the slot in his phone case and sighs like he never expected the picture to still be there. The picture, It should be in the pocket I frantically pat, then turn inside out. I run to my room and check the bed, tossing aside wool and books and purses long out of style. When I can't find it, I tear the sheets off, sending everything to the floor. Then I see the photograph, almost unrecognizable for the crumpled state it's in. I smooth it out, but it's almost torn in two, my mother's face split open in a paper imitation of the accident's aftermath. I unraveled to those many years ago, and only now can I utter the words that have haunted me. I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we we'll return to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Leslie Nekarima and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read, and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member curious as to where Rima grew up in Nigeria.
1: So um, I lived in um, we sort of toggled between two places, um, Port which is where my father worked, and Enugu, which was closer to our hometown. And both of them were. Anugu um, is probably quieter—not quite the village, but a much quieter city than Port was, which is right on the coast and also a busy oil town, and so a little bit more
0: lively. This question comes from an audience member wondering how the book was received both in Nigeria as well as in the U.S. So
1: the reception has been um, pretty has has been the same, it seems, on both sides of of the of the sea, and it, it was actually very important to me that it. Was uh, my work received um, uh, uh, sort of good reception in Nigeria because um, you know uh, I oft- sometimes when um, writing comes out of um, you know Africa is a country, that, Africa as a place, excuse me, and Nigeria is a country that's so misrepresented that um, that we are always very, sort of very hungry for um, stories that represent ourselves um, sort of fully in- and correctly. But I actually was very disinterested in the idea of um, rep- like sort of making reparations for that. I was more interested in uh, fully exploring um, Nigerian culture and um, exploring both the good and the bad aspects uh, in a way that um, fully informed the Nigerian experience. And so it was important for me that my book didn't just seek to sort of educate or correct narrative of um, stories coming out of Nigeria because that, man, you know, that, that sort of raised the question of who's is, who is my work for and who am I writing towards? And I see myself as writing towards other Nigerians, and I want them—I wanted them to have to have um, to sort of see themselves in my work and to have, you know, they, all, Nigerians already know what Nigeria is, Nigeria is like, so I'm not interested in sort of like what's Nigeria like. It's more let's play with this playground, like let's use our country and our culture to, as a playground. For, to explore the different ways that we can tell our stories. And so it was important for me that my writing offered something very specific to Nigerians, and, and it
0: did. This question is about what writers Arima enjoys reading.
1: So right now I read um, uh, um, Samuel Reynolds, Octavia Butler, Ursula Gwyn. Um, and these are these are um, writers that I came to some uh, as an adult. When I was a kid, I just went to the library and just like sort of like moved entire shelves of books into like this duffel bag. And so, there, in fact, there's so many science fiction books that I remember the plot, but then I was I g- gave no thought to who wrote this. So I just have I had you know these the, I have um, I read so many um, works of science fiction and fantasy whose authors I cannot name now only because I was just interested in just, like, reading. And I, I wasn't, you know, I was reading so indiscriminately that I, I, it was hard to keep track of who.
0: This audience member wonders how much of herself Arima puts in the characters she creates.
1: All right, well, I, so, I mean, um, um, that's a good question. Uh, I, myself, am not sort of, I would not be considered the ideal Nigerian woman, <laughs> so let's put it that way. And therefore, that's why, that's probably why stories of women who, sort of like, you know, misbehaving women really appeals to me. Um, and so I don't, you know, it's not necessarily that um, the stories are a direct reflection of my life because they aren't, but I do, um, but because I am somebody who has sort of chosen a life that's uh, an unconventional Nigerian life, um, I, like, for whatever reason, whenever I approach the page or whenever I think about the journey that my characters go on, they're also characters that choose slightly off Sort of goals, take, the, take the, sli- the slightly the path the paths they're not supposed to take, um, and characters who um, who sort of defy convention. Um, and you know, like Nigerian society is very conservative, so it's actually not not that easy to defy convention. <laughs> but um, I, you know, it's very important to me that my characters are um, are characters that are not. Uh, are not interested in the status quo or are interested are interested in sort of gaining the status quo through unconventional means.
0: Another audience member asks if Arima feels like her writing is changing the traditional image of the woman's role in Nigeria.
1: I think what happens is that those who are willing to hear it now have a voice, they have people who are sort of reflecting that. And so the idea that, you know, like I think that a lot of women who... Um, who has, sort of have these feminist ideals or feminist ideas of, or unconventional ideas of, of, um, of, of how to be women in Nigerian society, um, they might have, they might sort of see reflections of themselves, but I don't see it, I mean, it's, it's too early to say that it's changed um, Nigerian society at large, and I think it's almost too late for those that are adults now. I think it's, like, we just need to like, save the children and, and hope that, you know, they, that they grow up um, with uh, this more equitable idea of what society should look like.
0: This question asker wonders if Arima drew upon any personal experiences to help write about a troubled relationship between mother and daughter.
1: Um, no, I mean, like, you know, my, my mother is my best friend, so it's like, you know, but I am, I, um, I mostly wanted to, um, you know, sort of like with the, the story that um, Second Chance has said, the idea that at some point your mother is not just a mother, like you're both women in the world and you have disagreements, right? And I really wanted to explore that idea. I think it's like a really interesting sort of parent-child dynamic, right, where you di- sort of diverge from being just a daughter, and it's so like that that like that moment in time is something that's really fascinated me, whether it's one that is fraught or one that is um, where, you know, you sort of have find more commonality of experience. It's just sort of, such an interesting part of growing up that that I didn't see portrayed as like in the way that I wanted. And so I, I sort of play with the idea. Again, sometimes it's fraught, sometimes it's not. But I just wanted to just play with that moment.
0: The last question of the night. Comes from an audience member wondering about the absence of men in Arima's "Who Will Greet You at Home."
1: So I've I've gotten so much flack for the fact that there are no men in the story, but yeah, and it wasn't when I was writing the story. Actually, wasn't an intentional thing. I just sort of um, you know this world sort of came to me in this image of this child made of yarn that opens up the story, and um, and I just sort of followed this and and you know, sort of in the way that when you're writing, you ask, well, what if, what if this, what if that? And so I just sort of followed those what if questions to their natural conclusion. And in this particular instance, it just happened to be a what if that resulted in a world that had no men because women were building their children out of these found materials that they could get according to their class station, like their class station in life, and you know, and then and then bringing these children, children to life, and so there was just there was just no point in the writing of the story that um, that it would have been organic for me to like just include a man just to have one in, and so it just ended up happening that there were no men in the story. Um, and I feel like, I'm like I've, I've dealt with enough grief about that, <laughs> which, I don't, which doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for coming.
0: That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Brookdale event with Leslie nneka Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Vidar Sunstall at St. Paul Public Library's Highland Park Community Center. Award-winning Norwegian crime novelist Vidar Sunstol is best known in America for his Minnesota trilogy, set on the North Shore. His newest, The Devil's Wedding Ring, takes place in the author's native Telemark, Norway, and is steeped in the history and folklore of Scandinavia. It debuted in September. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Minpost, and Common Good Books where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.